John 15, verse 13 is a verse that's been used many, many times, especially by presidents when they're doing the Congressional Medal of Honor, the most prestigious recognition that can be given to any of our military personnel. Um, and this comes from the words of Christ. It's kind of interesting that uh, this passage is used in describing the sacrifice and the willingness on soldiers to lay down their lives for each other. And some of them, many of them, actually did that very thing. Uh, this is a section in John 15 that starts off with Jesus saying, He's the vine and we're the branches. And, and he goes on to describe that the absolute necessity of being connected to Him for everything to work in our lives spiritually. That we have to be in Him and attached to Him and in a way that his life is flowing through us. And he says it's possible that you can look like you're attached and not be attached and you dry up and wither. I think that's a possibility. But in this section about the vine and the branches, he gets to this point to where he talks about the greatest value about that. The verse that I'm referring to is verse 13, where he says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But this section actually starts with verse 9, when he talks about this dynamic called love. And he begins by declaring what qualifies real love. He says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue or abide in my love. Now think about that again. As the Father loved him, and that he had loved the Father, and he had loved these men that way, he says they are to continue in that love. And let me just start it in verse, uh, going in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There's a connection there we'll talk about in just a moment. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I speak to you and I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment. That you love one another even as I loved you. Greater love have no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant does not know what his Lord does. But I have called you friends for all things I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth much fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you will ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And he concludes this section of love by saying, These things I command you, that you love one another. He was actually calling them to be a band of brothers. These 12 men, and we know one of them was the orchestrator of the betrayal, and he, he left the group. But he is calling the 12 to become a band of brothers, to love one another, to be totally connected to each other in the same love that he and the Father has. If you look at the closing words of the prayer in John 17, when Jesus prays before they head out to Gethsemane where he's going to be arrested, he, the, the entire chapter is a prayer. He's talking to the Father, and he's praying to the Father about these men. 
And the last words in that prayer are these. I have made known to them. He's telling the Father, I have made known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. He was praying that this love dynamic went to God that he would reveal the bond to us that he is revealing to Jesus for his disciples right then. And it's not a bond that is just in theory and ideas and we believe alike and we worship alike, but because it goes deeper than that. It's, it's about the bond that we have through Christ. The military lives and thrives on this kind of dynamic. Without the sense of team, there is no military. Now, in their terms, the military term is unit cohesiveness. It's everything. That's why in basic training, what they do is they break them down as individuals and make them think as a whole. Not think individually, but think as a whole. To think in terms of team and mission. And no matter what was in front of them, they have this concept that we are together in the mission. And that when things go awry, when things go scary, when death is coming, the team stays together. Even if they all die together, they stay together. And this is why so many get the Congressional Medal of Honor is because they do things that we think, well, why would anybody, why would any, why would any soldiers get on a landing vessel heading to the beaches of Normandy when they're the first vessels to land and it was about 95 to 100% death on those landing vessels. Because all of the batteries along that Normandy beachhead by Germany was focused on the first vessels. But they went. They went they absorbed the fire. They, they absorbed the fire enough to where the ones that were landing behind them had a better chance. And the one behind them had a better chance. And many of them had mass on those ships and had prayer and chaplains, and chaplains died with them. But it was because they looked upon themselves as not individuals, but as a team. And this is why you have Congressional Medal of Honor given to many, many people. Let me just give you some numbers here if you don't, if you don't research this stuff, because I'm, I'm a history buff. I research things like this. The Congressional Medal of Honor was originated with the Civil War. And through all the conflicts, whether it's the Spanish-American uh, War, whatever it was, there's been Medal of Honors given. But the major wars, War One, was the one that had the most at that time. 121 Medals of Honor was given out, 34 posthumously. World War II, it jumped to 464 Congressional Medal of Honors, 266, over 50% of those were posthumously. In other words, the person died doing whatever they got the Medal of Honor for. In the Korean War, 145 Medals of Honor were given. 103 of them were posthumously awarded. And in Vietnam, 260, and this, this number uh, changes occasionally because just recently, I think there was a man from Alabama whose story was kind of buried in, in uh, some files, 
And not long ago, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor when they saw what he had done. But 260, 162 of them were awarded posthumously. Soldiers laying down their lives in that greater love have no man than a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think they did this just because of indoctrination? Just because they're trained to think that way. Or there's a demand for courage in the midst of a battle. Or you think about that verse again. Greater love hath no man. Not greater ideology hath no man. No greater training. Because it takes more than training. More than ideas. More than theory. More than practicing war games. In the midst of it. The Lord says there's no greater love, there's no greater dimension of love than a man laid down his life for his friends. What does that mean? If you were to rewrite that, how would you rephrase that? And I think it goes back to where Jesus is saying, if you abide in me and you stay connected to me, which you will have the love that the Father and I have. It'll be in you. And if you stay connected to me and you stay with the vine, you'll begin to have our view of love. Our view, let me give you another word, our view of worth. Our view of value. You know, you think about first responders. Let's just go from the military over to first responders. What about firefighters? What about 9-11? When I think 300-plus firemen died when those two buildings collapsed, they didn't know anybody hardly maybe in those buildings. Maybe some of them knew some. But they didn't run into the buildings because they had a love for those people, did they? I think we think of love as some kind of emotional bond, some kind of worth that we have because we're in a relationship with someone. But what makes them not run from a building on fire, but into a building on fire, is because of this. They value life. They value the people in those buildings, regardless of whose names are attached to them and who they are and what they're doing in their families. They are trained to save lives because they put a value on life when this is happening in terms of a military unit, they train to have each other's back. This is why he says, no greater love, no one, there's no greater love than this, than someone would lay down his or her life. And then he says this in verse 14, and my friends, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, how does that fit in? I think that's the foundation of verse 13. Here's, here's two things I think you can get out of verse 14 that makes 13 work. And these are the two things. One, you have to value the person you're serving and the person you're willing to lay down your life for. And the other thing, you have to believe in what connects you. Jesus says, you're my friends you're not my friends just because I've chosen you to be my friends. You're my friends when you actually follow through with what I tell you. It's almost like he's saying, you're, you're not going to qualify as my friends if you reject what I'm telling you. 
If you receive what I'm telling you, if you believe what I'm telling you, if you do what I command, if you believe what I'm telling you enough, then you're really my friends and you will be able to lay down your life for each other. You know, soldiers spend time together, lots of time together. In fact, when you research, whether it's the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, um, World War I especially, it gets a little bit better in World War II. So what gets better? People dying from other things other than a battlefield. There's sicknesses and there's disease. The biggest problem in World War I was where we were losing men in camps, training camps and basic camps, because of spinal meningitis and influenza had a breakout in 17 and 18. And we, were, we lost probably more men to non-combat sicknesses than we did on the field. So they are all times together. They're training together. They get sick together. They fight. They don't have to really like each other, but they're, they're trained to have each other's back. They value truth. Now, some people... You know, anybody who says, I'm against war, I say, well, who's for it? I don't know of anybody that's for I'm for war. Let's go and have another war. But if you look at history, the United States did not want anything to do with World War I. Or World War II. World War I, we were losing merchant ships to the German submarines. Yes, they had submarines in World War I. And we, were, we lost a lot of American citizens. And we lost, they, they even torpedoed an ocean liner filled with people on a voyage, innocent civilians, and some of them were Americans. So in 1917, we're pulled into that war. Uh, the Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill is a great rendition of the struggle that England had in begging President Roosevelt and the United States, please help us. They're, they're hammering us, us over here. And we're, we're a non-combatant. We're, we're in a state of neutrality. And all of that ended when? Pearl Harbor. So we're pulled into two wars that, that we weren't, like, waiting to get in. I think some people need to read history a little bit. We're, we're not a, or, a warmonger nation. We... We were trying our best to stay out of it. Even losing merchant ships in World War II. Roosevelt, like, we don't want to be in that war. We don't want to have anything to do with what's going on in Europe. And Japan made us think otherwise. And so here we are in World War I. And the evil of World War I is hard to describe. It's called the Great War. You know, um, can you... Can you define evil in any way that avoids talking about some kind of act of harm or injustice that's done to someone else? Is there any definition of evil that does not point to something horrific that someone does to someone else? Can you? That's evil because... It's kind of like what's kind of stirring in the media about MS-13 and the, the evil of barbaric things that people do. The, I remember in high school, 
when Vietnam was raging and I was 1A in 1969, I was eligible for the draft at 18 years of age. I remember seeing a, a photograph that was published in, I think, Times or something, where, a, where a, a South Vietnamese soldier had killed a Viet Cong and he was holding the guy's head by his hair. They had decapitated and he was holding it up as a trophy. And it made my stomach turn. And this is what war does. It brings back out barbarism and barbaric. And we say, that's evil. And World War I had an evil start. You know, if you don't know what started World War I, I can just briefly tell you here. We're going to spend a little time here on this. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was Archduke of Serbia, or uh, rather Austria-Hungary, a Serbian terrorist ran up to his car when they was, he and his wife was dr being driven through Sarajevo and shot both of them to death, assassinated them in 1914. They wanted Serbia to be detached from all of Austria and Hungary. And so he assassinated the leader, one of the leaders. And so they declared war on Serbia. Russia came to Serbia's defense because Serbia was in contract with Russia. And then Germany declared war on Russia. And then France got in and England got in. And all of a sudden you have a full-fledged war in Europe that actually started from an assassination. And in 1917, we were finally pulled into it. Raymond, you talked about your first cousin being a casualty in the Vietnam War. Well, as far as I know, on either side of our family, on Brenda's family and my family, there's only one person that I know of was killed in action in any of those conflicts. And it was a great uncle by the name of John J. Waltman. He was the eighth of 13 children to Moses Owen and Emma Waltman. I have probably some of the only pictures of them. And I have, I, I, I got my, the wrong folder. I have documents that was given to me by Brenda's grandmother. Brenda's grandmother is in this picture that you're about to see. And you go ahead and bring the, that picture up. Her grandmother, Anna, Annie Mae, is all the way to the right. She's the youngest of 13 children to Moses Owen and Emma Waltman. To her right is the next to the youngest, her brother, D. Waltman. Uh, all of them, she was born in 1907 and she passed away in 93. But I was in her mobile home in Laurel, Mississippi, and I was doing a lot of genealogical work on Brenda's family just to see what kind of family I married into. And uh, I remember our kids saying, do we have to go to another cemetery? I said, yes, isn't this wonderful? We go go take pictures. <laughs> but uh, I was asking her about her family. She's the youngest of 13 kids. Now, in this picture, her mother passed away shortly after this picture. She didn't live much longer. And I must tell you, there's a reason why you see such um, 
a facial expression because by the time this picture, this photograph was taken, her and her husband had buried four of their 13 children. Um, the One of them, Mary Elizabeth, died at the age of five in 1901. Her dress had caught on fire in an outside uh, fire pit they had. They put it out, but she died from the injuries of that fire. Nancy Jane died short of being three months of age from a childhood sickness. William and Willis, the two oldest of their children, two men in their late, to, uh, late 20s, early 30s, died eight days apart in 1912. William was accidentally killed with a sh by a shotgun by a brother-in-law, which Annie Mae tells me she didn't think it was an accident. So I don't know. <laughs> and Willis, their second oldest, worked for the railroad, lost a leg in an accident, and gangrene set up, and he died. At this point, they had buried four, and more than likely, their son, John Waltman, was unaccounted for, maybe when this picture was taken. So six years after losing their two oldest boys, they haven't heard from John J. Waltman for months. I want to take you to the next picture because this is the first part of a letter that I have that uh, he wrote to his mother. Now, the part up at the top is telling her, don't worry about the insurance. I've signed up for the insurance. It's being deducted from my pay. His pay was $1 a day serving in the military. This is Camp Beauregard, Louisiana. This is actually a National Guard unit from Mississippi that was activated. And uh, I'll just read this. If you, if you, his writing almost has to be deciphered. There's one word I can't make out what it is. But he says, Dear Mother, he, he addressed it to his mom, Emma. I will... I will write you a few lines this morning to let you know that I am well and feeling fine and hope you are, you all are the same. Mama, I am under quarantine. I did find, you can, you know, go into records that he was, there was an meningitis outbreak in that camp. And so he was quarantined for a while. As I am under quarantine and will be there, uh, be here for 10 days. And then 4,600 of us will leave this camp and then we'll be on our way to France. Nearly every man in the camp would have went if they would have been allowed to go. But, and there's a word there I couldn't figure out, but not allowed to go. Maybe those who are sick were not allowed to go. Almost every soldier wants to go over there and get through with the work. <clears throat> and this is the second. The rest of the letter, uh, and this is, of course, some of the units that a picture of them getting ready to leave for France, that they have been expected to do so, they uh, can come home and stay. Mama, if you can send me $10 without putting yourself to very much trouble, I would be glad to buy it or to get it to buy tobacco and other things, little things that will be necessary to have on our way over there. If you can't send it so that it will get here in 10 days, don't send it and don't put yourself to any trouble. So I will close for this time and will write again in a day or two. I guess you will get the allotment this month, so um, answer soon. 
your loving son, John Company M, 155th Infantry, Camp Beauregard, Louisiana. Actually, this letter was written on May the 11th, 1918, a hundred years ago this month. And this, as far as we know, is the last they heard of him. I wondered what, when the war was over, in the last great Muse Argonne offensive called the 100 Days Offensive, uh, to give it a perspective, there was 20-something thousand U.S. soldiers killed in that, and 1.2 million American soldiers were involved in that offensive, just on the American side. So you see how massive this offensive was. Um, but they didn't hear anything about him for a while. I want to take you to the next slide, which is the letter. I have the originals. Because when Annie Mae, I was asking her about her family and about her parents and about her siblings, and I was just doing filling in genealogical gaps here in family, and she was telling me about the death of two sisters she never got to see and the death of her two oldest brothers. And, and as we were talking, she says, excuse me, she went back to a room, got this metal box, put it and sit it in my lap and says, here. And I opened it up, and I saw these two last two letters they had from John Waltman. I saw the letter from the War Department, the, the description of where he's buried, the amount of money that they, uh, they gave them and the cost of everything. And I says, well, do you realize what's in this box? She said, this is your family. This is family stuff. This is, you need to, she says, no, nobody in this whole family related to me has cared enough to ask me. I can hear her saying that, can't you? <laughs> and uh, since you're so interested, I want you to have it. I could feel the love. That's the way she was. That's the way she loved on you. She, I said, really? She says, yes. But there's other papers in here. I don't care. I want you to have it. You care about my family. You need to have it. Nobody else cares, or not, not, you know, cared all, but cared about that. So he gets killed on October the 11th in that last offensive in the Argonne Forest of France. He is buried like many right then. And a few years later, they reinter them in this Muse Argonne Cemetery. And this is his, well, let me read this. This is the letter. This is the top part. You see this dated March 25th, 1919. He gets killed in October and um, the armistice is signed in November, and they haven't heard anything from him. And this is why. He says, Madam, this is addressed to Mrs. Waltman. It is with profound regret that I confirm the recent telegram from the uh, adjutant uh, general announcing the death of Private John J. Waltman, October 11, 1918. Notification to this effect was sent by telegram on November the 17th. This was after the war to his father, um, and he's a little wrong there on Martin. It was Moses Waltman, Lafayette, Mississippi. The emergency address left by Private Waltman. This was returned marked undelivered. A letter sent to the same address on February the 6th was also returned. So a month later, they finally get their address in Taylorsville, Mississippi. And he says, very respectfully, P.C. Harris, the adjutant general. So... This is the first they heard. 
And if you could go back to that picture of, of that family, and I've, I've looked at the faces of those two people, and they, the pain is etched in their faces, the sorrow. And the last photograph I want to show you is John J. Waltman's burial at the Muse Argonne. It is the largest cemetery for American soldiers in Europe. Over 15,000 American soldiers are buried in the Muse Argonne, and it is kept meticulously. John J. Waltman, why does this matter to us? Why should it matter to us? Because we should value life. We should value people. We should value, we, we ought to occasionally walk through and watch for markers in a cemetery of people who served in the military. Maybe they weren't killed on the battlefield, but they're owed our thanks. They deserve our thanks. And the greatest value, and the praise team can come back up, the greatest value, and I share this with people, the greatest value that's ever been placed on life is the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he put value on life. These Congressional Medal of Honors are awarded to people who valued the life of someone else they were with more than their own and risked their own death. And some of them were willing to die, and they did die in doing what they were doing. Why? Because they were trained to do that. I think it goes deeper than that. I think it's because they loved one another. This should say something to us as a people, that we should be in a community of love, not a community of giving and taking, but a community of serving of helping each other, encouraging each other. And on this Sunday, on Memorial Day weekend, I want to call you to a recommitment to look around you and value the people right there with you. To value them. To value every person that walks the doors of this building on a Sunday or a Wednesday. To put worth to them. To think outside of ourselves. And to say, what can I be? What can I do? How can I serve? How can I bless? This, what we just went from in John 15, does not work one way. Love does not work one way. It has to be reciprocated. And he was telling them to love one another. To love each other. And if they do that, Everyone in the group is being loved and loving. And then that's what it's supposed to be about. Would you stand with me? I want to remind you, wherever you're at in your life right now, the Lord thought enough about you to die for you and was raised again so that you and I could walk in His love. Lord, I thank you that you are the giver of life, but you're also the giver of a level of love that doesn't come from us. We can't learn it from each other. We can only receive it by being attached to you and your love flowing through us so that we look at others, not 
for how they can benefit us, but how can we serve them? How can we minister to each other, Lord? I pray for a revival of love, that kind of love that you said there's no greater dimension of it. There's no greater version of it than the, the willingness to lay down our lives, to lay down our privileges, to lay down our preferences. Forgive us, Lord, when we put our preference above the whole. Cleanse us from our own pride, our own self-awareness, Lord, so that we are more aware of the body of Christ and not just the part that we have. I pray for a revival of that, Lord. Would you, right where you're standing, simply an act of surrender, saying, Lord, I want to do what you've called me to do, and I want to do it in such a way that I'm in, a, I'm in a community of love, of mutual love, mutual respect, mutual honor, mutual value and worth, and that we, were, we commit ourselves to serving each other. Could you do that? Thank you, Lord.